of verses in my uh, reading that I cut off a little uh, too soon here. Let me just finish that right now, and then I'll get into the sermon. But an important part of it, it says about Peter, with many other words, with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And then, so significant, it says that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. (laughs) Wow. Let the church be the church. There's a gospel song that uh, includes these words. Let the church be the church. Let the people rejoice. We've settled the question. We've made our choice. Let the anthems ring out songs of victory for God's church triumphant is alive and well. One church leader expressed it this way, despite all of its faults due to our sinfulness, it is still the most significant concept ever created. It has been God's chosen instrument of blessing for 2,000 years. It has survived persistent abuse horrifying persecution, and widespread neglect. Parachurch organizations and other Christian groups come and go, but the church will last for eternity. It is worth giving our lives for, and it deserves our best. Well, currently we are, of course, in discussions and uh, taken up prayerfully considering our future, Uh, praying that we'll have discernment, that we'll be prudent, that we are led of the Lord. And it isn't always that every decision is, uh, you know, right or wrong. In fact, most of our decisions aren't a matter of right and wrong. They're a matter of what is the best and what in, in our judgment is the best decision to make at this time. But it seemed to me that uh, given what we are going through, that this would be a good time to do a series from the book of Acts, which is really the record of the early church. Uh, it's sort of like as we look ahead to our future, we need to look back. Something about going back to the very blueprint, the beginning of the church. And uh, throughout this letter or this, uh, this book of Acts, written by Luke, we believe, we have a record of how it all began, how it grew, and how Jesus' disciples followed through on the mandate that he gave them before he ascended, which was to make disciples from the whole world, teaching them to follow all that he had said. And so I thought the place to begin was the, uh, Pentecost in the, uh, in the words of uh, 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 Maria in that uh, classic uh, movie. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. (laughs) And uh, that's what we have here. The day of Pentecost is really the beginning of the church. And uh, uh, by way of background here, the setting, our Lord has been arrested, tried, crucified, He has risen with his new body. 
He appeared to his disciples intermittently over a period of 40 days. And then before he ascended into heaven, he instructed them to remain in Jerusalem. It's like they were not to do anything just yet. Remain in Jerusalem and await for the special coming of the Holy Spirit. And that this then will be the fulfillment of what John the Baptist said early in, uh, as, as Jesus began his ministry. He said, I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Also in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and this is, this is a description of what's going to happen. It's not saying this is what you're going to have to do. I mean, that's what they're going to have to do, but that's not what he's saying there. He's describing what's going to happen. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, to Samaria, and onto the furthest corners of the world. Pentecost. The word actually means 50th. And it was the Jewish festival of the first fruits of the grain harvest, also called in the Old Testament Feast of Weeks, because it came after a period of seven weeks and one day. So it was 50 days after Passover. And it was one of the three great pilgrim festivals within Judaism. And so the setting here is, well, it's still Jewish. Judaism is being practiced here, including Christ's apostles and disciples. And so here they are on that day of the Feast of Pentecost. There is about 120 of them together and the Holy Spirit descends without, with the accompanying phenomena, and it's so astounding that it captures the attention of the larger Jerusalem community. And understandably, the people out there, they want an expla explanation. What's going on? Tell us about it. And, uh, and then uh, Peter able to explain it to him. He says it's that special outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was promised for the last days. And then he gives them the whole story of Jesus, uh, who he was, and uh, that, uh, that, that what he did, and that they, the nation, had him crucified, but that he rose again. But then he tells them in from verse uh, 36 up to 38 how they can repent and be saved. And about 3,000 respond positively and are baptized. And the church is born. Just repeating those verses again. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, and then it says, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart, and they want to know, what can they do about it? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church is born. About 3,000 plus, 3,000 plus, you could say charter members. 
of first, dare we say, first Baptist church in Jerusalem. I think it would be completely accurate to say first church in Jerusalem. Starts out with over 3,000 people. Amazing start. What a beginning. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us? And I, I think I need to, to say here that it means everything. There is nothing related to the Christian life that doesn't relate back to Pentecost in one way or another. But I want to talk about three things today that I think is very directly relevant for us. Uh, the first one is more about uh, you know, laying the foundation, but, but it, it, Pentecost here marks the birth of the church. It's the beginning of the church. And then secondly, I want to talk about it's the beginning of the work that we're part of in the building up of the church. And then thirdly, Pentecost demonstrates something about the universal mission of the church. But it marks its birth. Uh, it's the beginning of the church, and in a way it's sort of like a graduation because it is both a completion and a beginning. And you think of a graduation as like that. You know, when you graduate, you celebrate that you have accomplished something. It's the end of something. Mission accomplished. But of course, we call it commencement, and I, I don't know why we call it commencement, but it makes sense. It's the beginning of something new. Or, uh, or when you got married. And here I'm going I'm to just uh, put this from the male perspective a little bit. You know, you found this person that you really are interested in. So over a period of, could be seven days, could be seven weeks, could be seven months, could be seven years, anything in between. But you were kind of wooing. You're kind of courting this person in the hope uh, that she will marry you. And finally you ask her and she accepts. And then you set the wedding day and you get married. And so on the one hand you can say mission accomplished. It's the, com uh, it's the completion. But of course we all know that it's also just the beginning, isn't it? And Pentecost is like that. It's the completion of Jesus' mission. He who was eternally with the Father came into our world he came as a human with human flesh and human nature. He was crucified to atone for all, all our sins, buried and rose again with a new body. And then it says that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, to the place of authority. He is the enthroned Lord at the right hand. He is King Jesus. And the critical part of an evangelistic presentation is this very thing. You have to give allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But his mission isn't quite finished even at the point of being enthroned because the next step is to enable his followers to send the Holy Spirit so that all of his followers have the Spirit in them and that they can continue the work that he began. And, uh, you know, there's a sense in which when he was here, he was localized in a human body. But now through his Spirit coming upon us, there's a sense in which he is present everywhere where the Christians are. Through us, he is present. 
And so there is a sense then in which now his mission is complete. But of course, at the same time, it's the beginning for us. A new era has begun. And for this reason, his ministry through us will take a different shape. And that brings me to the second point. The beginning of the church. Number two, the beginning of the work of the church. They now will be ministering the mandate that Jesus gave them before he ascended. As I said earlier from Matthew, make disciples of all nations. And in Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then what's going to happen? It says you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be uh, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and onto the other most part of the world. They will be empowered so that these very flawed, limited human beings will be the witnesses. I will build my church. Jesus said, I will build his church. It's his work. But he will do it through them. You will be my witnesses. He will do it through them. And we saw the example of that begin already. Peter proclaiming the Jesus story and people responding. You know, Acts uh, 1, 1 and 2 is quite interesting where Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus, what would the former book be here? Anybody? In the former book I wrote, that would be Luke's gospel, right? I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. In the previous book, in Luke, I wrote about what Jesus began to do. Now the sequel, the book of Acts, he is writing about what Jesus continued to do. And after giving instructions, there you already see that, yeah, that fits with he is continuing to do it, but he is doing it through his followers. As I said, in the days of him being on earth, he was localized. But now he can work through his church in a special way. He will continue. He will build his church. But he will use Peter and James and John and all of these others that became part of the church that day. And so it is for us today. He is using us. It's his work, but he works through us to build his church. And it's not just the upfront people. Oh, how we need to stress that. You know, in a small church like this, you, you know, us upfront people get a lot of, uh, we get a lot of profile. I mean, we might be, uh, we, we might be 33% of the congregation, okay? But think of a big mega church and the many, many people. There's some upfront people, but the hundreds of people who are not upfront necessarily, they likewise, they are just as important. God is using them. Now, it is so important to remember both sides of this equation. It's his work, and it is through his people. We need both. 
See, if we think exclusively in terms of it's His work, it might give us a reason, an excuse perhaps, for being unfaithful to our responsibility. It's His work. He's going to do it anyway, with or without us. There's a delightful story about a pastor visiting a man out in the country who had a most beautiful, well-kept garden. And the pastor saw in this garden such a wonderful example of the wonder of God's creation. So beautiful what he has done here. And, uh, and he mentioned it a couple times, you know. But marvel, I marvel at God's beautiful creation. Well, the gardener with the green thumb was thinking of something else. And he said, you should have seen this garden when God was looking after it all by himself. <laughs> we have responsibility. We are fellow gardeners with the Lord. He does the work of the church through us. We are saved to serve. And the same spirit that came upon them has given us gifts for that purpose. On the other hand, if we forget, or on the same hand, I guess, if we forget that it's his work, we're apt to, you know, if we, no, if we think it's our work now, uh, we're apt to rush ahead without being adequately prepared spiritually. Wait, he said to them. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We don't have to wait for the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit is here. The Spirit is in us now. But there's a time, there's a place for being quiet, for being prayerful, for waiting. Uh, a place for being thoughtful, you know, really thinking carefully. There's a lot of emphasis throughout the Bible about wisdom and prudence. Or read the book of Proverbs, for example. And it's important to stop and remember that it's his work and to be sure that we are really surrendered to the Lord and to his interests. Because that is when the Spirit can work in us. It's so easy for us to have biases and preferences, and this is, this is really what we want. But if we're fully surrendered, we remember that what does he want? And we're more apt to tune into that. And uh, when we think it's our unilateral work, we're apt to run into other difficulties or limitations to us, you know, wrong kind of self-confidence, prayerlessness, lack of vision, playing safe, setting goals that are limited to what we think we can accomplish in our own strength. And if we forget that he is the one building his church, we can become distracted from those essentials that he wants distracted by the things we might tend to assume is the right way of doing church. Of course this is the way you do church. But it's an assumption. may not be his plan at all. Or we can make our preferences into essentials and, then, and be distracted from what he labels and teaches are the essentials. Dallas Willard comments on this, on these kind of preferences that may distract us. He says, quote, So what kind of clothes should people wear to meetings? And should they stand still when they sing? And what should they sing? 
Should there be prayer ministry? And should it be part of the service or after the service or at a different service? Should we expect or permit miracles to happen in our services or just sound teaching? How should the Lord's Supper be done and baptism? Should we use a prayer book? And if so, should it be the old one or the new one? And on and on. (laughs) And he says, please note, I'm not saying that such things are of no importance. I'm saying two things. One is that they are not the starting points or the essential and foundational matters. And that is why the New Testament is silent about them. And secondly, if you make them out to be essential or even very important, the local congregation will make little progress in terms of the spiritual formation of those in regular attendance. He says that these matters do not bring anyone into Christ-likeness, whichever side of them one stands on. And he dares to say that is a proven fact of life. Look and see. I'm sure that he's right. Congregate with or fellowship with the ordinary guy or gal from a mega church or the ordinary guy or gal from a small church or the regular guy or gal from a charismatic church or the regular guy or, uh, from a liturgical church. You know what? I think you're going to find the same kind of sinners and the same kind of good people in all of them. Those non-essentials really don't really make a big difference, probably no difference at all. Other things that make a difference uh, whether you're becoming Christ-like or not. And he goes so far as to say, in fact, standing on these things as essential is what produces mean and angry Christians. This is an inevitable result of failing to center everything on becoming the people who, have the, who want to be like the character of Christ, or who should be in the character of Christ. It's, it's so logical. Focus on these peripheral things that are just a matter of taste, and the, where the Bible says nothing about them. You neglect the things that matter most. It is his church. He is building it, but he's building it through us. But we are stewards, we're not owners, and we're called to serve, yes, but we're called to serve according to his priorities. It's not what we want, the kind of church we necessarily want, but what does he want? What does he want? His church, his church. Certainly he wants us to become increasingly Christ-like. The third point is also about what he wants. Number three, Pentecost demonstrates its mission, the mission of the church. How so? Well, it demonstrates that the mission of the church is a universal mission. Imagine the setting. The disciples are together in one place. Here's Peter, John, Andrew, James, Jesus' mother, says his brothers too are there if you read chapter 1 and many others like it said about 120 
Now just imagine, just imagine that uh, they're chatting together excitedly. Isn't this wonderful? What a warm fellowship we're having. Let's grow deeper and deeper in the Lord and grow old together. After all, there are 120 of us. Let's just call it the Church of the Upper Room. But no way. Spirit wouldn't let them even dream of it. Rather, he created such a commotion through the phenomena that a crowd from the larger community gathered around them demanding an explanation. And Peter gives the explanation. He proclaims what they have to do. 3,000, it says. About 3,000 responded. Saved. But they were not only saved, but at the same time, they were integrated into their number. They didn't even have a choice to say, I'm not sure we want you into our membership. The Holy Spirit would not let them exist for themselves. Okay? How do these physical phenomena, or what do they mean? Well, the sound of wind, tongues of fire, speaking in tongues, all three of them are strong proof, strong evidence of God's presence. But the speaking in tongues occurs a couple more times throughout the book of Acts. Some things about it, a couple things. First of all, I want you to note they weren't seeking it in all three cases. It just happened. God's choice, God's timing. But in each case... The speaking of tongues happened when a new group was coming into the kingdom, becoming part of the church. And here at the beginning, we see that people within Judaism from all the various nations throughout the empire or the empire are in Jerusalem. And because of, because of the feast, the feast of Pentecost. And so they're all there. And they hear these Galileans praising God in the language of these various nations. What does that mean? It means that the whole world representatively is there. And the world is being spoken to in their own current native language. Pentecostal is a demonstration of the universal nature of the gospel and Christ's church being universal. And actually, many of you, most of you probably, you're familiar with the Tower of Babel. Remember what happened there? Genesis 11. They were building a tower that they wanted to reach all the way up to heaven. And God is saying, you know, to keep these people from carrying on further in their sinfulness, we will confuse their language. And so... This happened to them and they couldn't understand one another anymore, so they stopped the building project. They scattered. Sin does that. Sin scatters, separates people. But Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And so here, uh, instead of people being scattered through the gospel, people are being gathered into one. Uh, here in the different language groups, they hear the praises of God in their respective languages. So Pentecost is of gathering nations under Christ. Even as Jesus commanded 
In Matthew 28, 19, he says, make disciples of all nations. And then Acts 1, 8, closer to this text here. Uh, You're going to be my witnesses to all these different groups. Now, to us, that doesn't seem that significant. But remember, these were Jews who were interested in Jesus restoring the kingdom to Israel and how hard for them to see beyond their own boundaries. Witnesses in Jerusalem? Great, fine. In all Judea? No problem. Samaria? Wait a minute. These hated hybrids? Lord, you've got to be kidding. But it doesn't stop there to the ends of the earth. As we keep on reading in Acts, we see that they got there, but we also see it wasn't easy. There was reluctance there. Think of Peter in Acts chapter 10, where God is calling him to a Gentile's home, and he's so reluctant. And then he has to explain that reluctance when he, when he goes there. It was hard for them to get it. But they did. They got there. But that's the program. It's the universal gospel for a universal church consisting of people from every tribe and nation. Sin causes alienation between God and ourselves, between one another. But the gospel reconciles, and Pentecost demonstrates this bringing of people together, inclusive. But there's a warning here for us. It's relevant for us this morning. Uh, We're not going to necessarily have a great influence on the furthest uh, corners of the world, but how about in our own immediate world? There's a strong warning. Someone has said that every church knows intuitively who to exclude. That's horrible, but probably true. Every church knows intuitively who to exclude. Sometimes it's the single moms. How come they're single? How come they're parents without having a partner or a legal husband? Sometimes it's the blue-collar people in a white-collar congregation. I've been out in the country, and I know that it can be non-country folk in a rural congregation. Often it's people of different races. Philip Yancey writes about how in one of the churches he grew up in, they spent thousands of dollars on foreign missions to black people, and yet a black person was not allowed to become a member of their church. Every church knows intuitively who to exclude, and churches often exclude, usually it's subtle, usually passive, by default. But that's negative. Positive. Each local church has the opportunity to demonstrate the universal gospel of reconciliation. You know what? I think we're doing quite well here. At least if it has to do with the ethnic things. I think that's wonderful. And I suspect in terms of, you know, dollars and cents too, that we're, you know, sort of all over the map, and that's wonderful. But we have the opportunity to be a place where all kinds of people of different color, of different social categories, of different backgrounds, with different kinds of sin struggles and different kinds of scars from the past can experience integration, acceptance, belonging without favoritism. Pentecost demonstrates that the mission of the church is to reach beyond ourselves.
It's not about us. It's not about becoming ingrown. It's about being outwardly focused. And to do that well, we need to be credible. We need to be a helpful presence in our world. And that means being relevant to the world of today. What's going on today? That wasn't going on yesterday. We have to adapt to that so that we can be positive, helpful, and relevant in our particular place. Firm about the essentials. We want to hear that everything's okay before we carry on. <laughs> I think that's being relevant. You hear, a, you hear a problem and you go and you try to deal with it. I just want to finish by uh, saying that we are called to be firm about the essentials. But we have to isolate. What exactly are they? And as we make decisions about trying to adapt and trying to fit in, trying to be a better presence to our community, we have to ask, wait a minute, is that compromising one of the essentials? Or isn't that really an essential but something we have made an, into an essential? And then flexible about the non-essentials. Let's pray. Father, once again, we pray for your wisdom, and we pray that we will have the heart that is sensitive and wanting more than anything else to follow your leading. And so we pray that you would guide us, and Lord, we know that it would be within your will. We know that because of the emphasis of Scripture, it would be within your will that we be an inclusive congregation that is able to help people follow Jesus Christ from whatever position they come to us from, whatever position they are. And so guide us as we go into our future, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.